Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation, a Stranger Things podcast. I'm Robin. I'm Jenna. And today we'll be discussing Chapter 5, The Flayed. So coffee selections for today, I am drinking, I'm just drinking a cold brew, but I went and got it from a local place here in my in my town called Gravel and Grind. It's actually a bike shop and coffee shop, which is kind of cool. But that sounds awesome. Yeah, it's pretty neat. It's got a very like industrial vibe. It's very hipster. My coffee selection for the day is Dr. Pepper. Nice. Actually, that's thematically relevant because they end up at a 7-Eleven in this episode. Oh, they do. That's right. Yeah, they guzzle <laughs> some soda. Yeah. Well, now that we've acquired coffee, let's proceed with contemplation. So the episode opens chaotically. Steve, Robin, Dustin, and Erica can't get the elevator to go back up or open. And as Robin concludes that they need a key card to operate it, Erica warns that she needs to be home for a family event the next day or her mother will come looking for her. Dustin and Steve climb, climb out and find that the elevator is deep underground. It's a very frantic scene, like the whole thing, beginning to end, pretty much. This was one of those scenes where you're watching the characters on screen and you're thinking to yourself, what would I do in that situation? It's a survival situation. So what are your steps? What are you looking for? What do you see? What do you do with the tools available to you? That kind of thing. And I just remember thinking when Dustin and Steve climbed on top of the elevator, like, don't do that. Not that they were actually in any danger, but instinctively, I don't like to go outside of the elevator box. You know, that just makes me cringe. What if it starts to go back up? Then what are you going to do? You know, especially with how fast it was moving. It was still pretty cool to see them, like, argue it out. There was a lot of little things, tensions happening between all four characters. Erica's response of, like, if I'm not home, my mom's going to come looking for me. It f- that felt very much like a child's perspective. like Fittingly, yeah, yeah. I just I love their dynamic. It's such an interesting combination of characters. Like, I love how they feed off of each other. Yeah, we've got Steve, who's like kind of like the leader, but at this moment in this scene, he's a little bit frazzled and out there. Robin is the one who's more a little bit more calm and logical in, in this high tense situation. And of course, Dustin is just screaming his head off because he's just he's lost it. And Erica is like indignant that this is happening to her. It's just interesting. They all have these different reactions to this stressful situation. They're kind of staring down a very scary possibility. Like, it's it's that fear of being trapped in an elevator, like, amped up, like, much higher than even normal. I mean, considered how long they were falling and the probable speed at which they were falling, they are way down there. It did make me think, again, how the hell did they really build this, like, that deep? Not just the elevator shaft, but then all the connecting underground business so far underground like so far underground it's not just underground it's like way underground i wonder if anybody's like done the math anybody that's watched the show maybe they could kind of sort of calculate the speed at which the thing was falling and then counted the seconds and then been like okay well then here's how far they probably are (laughs) that would that would be really fun to look up i wonder if anybody's done that i bet you could do the math on that Probably. Even if the Russians built Starcourt Mall and it was a Russian government or a Russian company or whatever, you're telling me they brought in 100% of the workers from Russia, from the Russian government? They didn't hire just local people for cheaper labor, probably, without traveling and all that stuff? Like In so 1985. What? Yeah. <laughs> if most of them don't speak English, how did this happen during the Cold War? And maybe that's just me being ignorant about how 
some of that stuff would have worked in that era, but... It's another thing that's testing my suspension of disbelief. But all that said, like, the end result of watching these, this group, like, get there is... The characters and their interactions are great in this situation. It's the situation itself. We just kind of are like, hmm, okay. We leave the Scoops troop, though, to swing back to Hopper and Joyce, who arrive at the abandoned Hess farm. And after sneaking in, they find a hidden trap door and then discover Alexei and another Russian hard at work on something. And there's this, like, not funny language barrier exchange between between Hopper and, and these two workers, which gets interrupted by Joyce, who hears and calls Hopper's attention to the footsteps above them. Terminator has arrived as well. He descends to find the Russians tied up before Hopper holds him at gunpoint. And in a blatant reference to Die Hard, Terminator asserts that Hopper won't shoot because he's a cop. You can't even call that homage. It's like... It's, it's pretty blatant. I get doing some of that, but like when it's like that line for line kind of, I don't know. They're better than that. That exchange could have been so much better. And I'm judging that by the show itself. Erica crawling through the vents as a diehard reference, again, that worked. Even the here's Johnny reference we get later on in this episode going like, hi, that at least works for me. I don't like it. I don't love it, but it works. Yeah. And the first time I watched this and I didn't pick up on the diehard reference, it felt like a really weird beat. Hopper is not like even in his at his best, he's not necessarily like he can be a little bit of a loose cannon. I mean, again, when we meet him in season one, he is struggling with depression. So like, I would not have necessarily like put it past him to shoot a Russian agent clearly like tied up with something really, really freaky. Now, granted, I don't think Hopper would shoot him in the head. I think he'd like wound him somehow, but I don't think Hopper would just kill him. This guy has information and answers that they that they really clearly need. So like it doesn't make sense for him to just take him out. I think he actually has a lot of good intuition and instinct about how to navigate a situation, which I think we see a little bit in chapter four. But I think it would have been nice to have seen a little bit more of that in this moment rather than just him going, you know, holding the gun up and doing this like super tough guy thing. Like I would have liked to have seen Hopper use more of his intelligence here. But hearing this line at this point in the, se- the season, it's like, of course he's going to shoot him. And he does. That's the thing. The gun goes off. They fight. Guns go flying. One thrown by Joyce very badly. And Hopper decides to free Alexi so that he, Hopper, and Joyce take fire as Grigori shoots almost nonstop at them. And that leads into the title sequence. Jonathan wakes to a phone call from Nancy, who tells him that she's at the hospital, and she knows that she sounds insane and irrational and out of touch, and she says that he can save the lecture, echoing chapter one, I might add, but that she needs to talk to Will, asking if he's safe. And that gets Jonathan's attention. Why wouldn't he be safe? Maybe this is nitpicking, but like, just once, I would like to see Jonathan be the first to figure something out. Like, he's always Uh. (laughs) so reactive. Every season, do you hear yourself? What's going on? I don't think that he's not an intelligent guy and that he couldn't figure things out. But honestly, I think that Jonathan's been in survival mode for so long that sometimes when you're just in that mode, it's it's really hard to get out of when you're... He's not going to look at something like magnets falling off the fridge and, you know think anything of it because he's got other shit to worry about. Joyce has that kind of anxious energy, so that's going to make her worry. And plus, at this point, she knows that weird things happening could affect her children, you know? So that's why she kind of... But I don't think if Jonathan noticed the same things that Joyce noticed, I don't think he would really care. And I think that goes for the same things that, that Nancy notices. Jonathan's a little bit more just... He's just not in that same zone as her. 
And I hear that. I think thinking about this coupled with the sequence later when Will says a thing about like, you weren't there. And he's like, I'm here now. And she goes, hallelujah. I think the show is starting to like not hide the fact that Jonathan doesn't actually like have a very active role in a lot of these plots. Like, and please don't get me wrong. I actually love Jonathan Byers. I think he's one of my favorite characters. He tends to play a very supportive role, which is important. But thinking about a lot of the action beats in this episode, especially in the hospital sequence, like Nancy's the one who does a lot of the action. She's the one who saves the day most of the time when it's the two of them. A lot of times the things that he does bring up, the, the, the points that he does notice and that he does catch tend to go kind of unacknowledged, which is partly why... The sequence between them in the elevator bothers me as much as it does, which we'll get to. So yeah, like in this moment, I just found myself going, it would be kind of nice if like just once he kind of got a moment to be the one to figure something out first and not be reactive. It just would be nice. It's a it's a wish list item. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and I think that that could speak really strongly to how little of an arc we get out of Jonathan really through this entire series. Like you said, he's support, but he what does Jonathan wants? We get a tiny glimpse of that with their argument in the car, I, I think, because I think that speaks to Jonathan wanting a stable job to be able to support himself, to survive, to not have to worry about, you know, survival anymore. But he doesn't really know how to think of anything other than that like I think it would be nice to see him want something other than survival I guess you could argue that he wanted to be with Nancy but I I don't know if that's really something that fulfills something deep in his character or anything like that does he have any grand aspirations for his life or or you know and that could be really interesting maybe he doesn't and maybe that could be an interesting point of contention between somebody like him and and Nancy, although, of course, at the end of the season, they aren't really together anymore. But if he does just want a nice job and Nancy wants more, that could have been kind of a cool thing. But they don't really get it into that. We still don't really know what Jonathan wants, you know, from life in general. It's not something that's important to this show yet, I guess. The closest I think we ever get is the line that Joyce in the fight between Joyce and Lonnie in season one when she says he wants to go to NYU. He's wanted to go to NYU since he was, I forget how Mm. old, but since he was very young. And also I'm thinking of the way that he and Nancy interacted in the first season in terms of like, you know, when they were planning to go after the Demogorgon, like he was a more active participant in that, you know, and and in his his conflict with, with Lonnie, like we saw him take more of a like, you need to leave. I just, I guess this moment made me kind of miss some of that. Back in the episode, um, in the woods, Hopper's truck is broken down, and while he tries to repair it, Joyce talks or tries to communicate with Alexi, pantomiming her magnets falling down. And Alexi seems to partially understand, or at least seems to be genuinely listening, like earnestly listening, but it frustrates Hopper. And ignoring Alexi's obviously distressed warnings, he has Joyce attempt to start the truck when the engine starts to smoke, and Joyce barely makes it out of the cab before the explosion goes off. No one in the audience is surprised by that, right? By which part, <laughs> honestly? Like, the Hopper's reactions to everything? No. Like, the... like mostly I meant the uh, the fact that Alexi's like, stop, stop, and then mm-hmm. the car, the, there's, a, there's clearly an explosive in there. Oh, an explosive? Well, the, the, yeah, the truck, like, goes boom. Well, that was something else that I, I was going to mention. Like, I, I literally don't think that cars can blow up like that. Unless they have 
like a bomb in them. So I was wondering if you meant like, do you think they'd rigged the truck with something? No, yeah. I, it was just, I think it was just supposed to explode from being, you know, shot at or something, which I still don't think would oh. happen. So they just kind of added this explosion in there for what? Because they wanted more drama or something? I assumed that it was an explosive, that it was that it was rigged because of the way that Alexi keeps going, stop, stop, stop. Like, which to me made it seem like maybe that's, like, Gory put it in there before he went into the house. That was that was what I assumed. Maybe I'm wrong. That's so funny. I really thought, because it was smoking a little bit before it went off. And, of course, we saw that the car had been shot at and they kind of hit, like, a mailbox or a fence or something on their way out. So I assumed the car was damaged and it was just kind of another one of those pointless Hollywood car explosions just because we can. Which I wish they hadn't done if that was their intention just because, you know... We, we don't need to ramp things up that hard so early, right? This uh, I mean, that's been one of our complaints about this entire season was how everything is so ramped up all the time and it really just doesn't need to be. They could have just stalled in the forest. Yeah. And if they really wanted to establish that maybe Alexi is trustworthy, they did that just a few minutes later with the him, you know, running to 7-Eleven ahead of them and them catching up to him. That's so true. So I wasn't really sure what the point of the car exploding was. Just for fun. Yeah. Maybe the implication is that because Alexi is an engineer of some sort, he can tell that it's about to explode. Maybe. <laughs> based on the noise. Because there's the noise. There's the clicking noise. Oh, so yeah. either way, it's uh, dramatic. And I do love Alexi's little echoed line of stop after the explosion goes off. Because it's very like, I told you, I'm not trying to actively harm you or even just piss you off. And that's effective in that we get little glimpses of Alexi's actual personality, which of course is very important for a little bit down the road. But I love that they start to set him up pretty much from the get-go. I mean, I think they did that really in the first scene he was in at the very beginning of the, the season. I think you could still see a little bit of he was maybe a little conflicted with everything that was happening, but still resigned to doing his duty. That's kind of what I got from him. And the fact that I could get that much from that scene that he was in in the very, very beginning of the sh uh, season, I don't know, I think they did a good job setting him up. Yeah, and shout out to Alec Utkoff, um, the gentleman playing Alexi. He does a mm -hmm. great job. Yeah. I, in general, love for the character of Alexi really does start here. And kind of like with Bob in season two, like feeling like it was a trap and turns out, I'd be right, in a way. <laughs> More's the pity. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I liked him anyway. Like, I, you know, I remember he was just, he was very likable. This actor has a lot of charisma, I yes. think, naturally. Yeah. I think so, too. I mean, first of all, that curly hair and that, like, boyish smile that he has, I mean, that really works in his favor. <laughs> well, and like, like you said, like, you see his personality right away. Like, the fact that he doesn't seem to be, like, smirking at Joyce while she's trying to to communicate with him mm. like he seems to be genuinely listening like okay let me let me listen to you yeah i like this character i'm bummed about that he won't be back because alexi was a real highlight like kind of what you said about uh mayor klein like from yeah alexi is <laughs> is one of the best points of this season oh yeah for, he's for great me. i love him Meanwhile, Hopper continues to be very grating like this is also when he gives alexi the nickname of smirnoff and it doesn't sit well no, yeah, Hopper is also personifying this agoraphobia that can be so famous in America, in, in especially in rural America or small towns, you know, if we, it's a bit of a stereotype maybe, but he's really bringing it out for some reason, you know. And again, like, they go for this weird, like, comedy 
aspect of it when it's like it, it feels much more fitting that Hopper would genuine would have like more genuine like okay what what are you doing in Hawkins what are you doing here what do you what what are you actually up to like that I think would have been more interesting especially considering like we've seen him deal with petty disputes in season two when he talks to the two guys that are like kind of warring with each other with their pumpkin patches and when he says you know the other two cops Callahan and Powell are being like laughing at at both of them meanwhile Hopper's like okay him threatening to do something and him actually doing something are two very different things like he's very like he's a like he acts like a like an actual police chief in that moment and like I just don't think we get any of that here like I could more easily have seen Hopper like almost ignoring Alexi entirely like that feels at least closer to like what I think Mm. like Joyce you're wasting your time like just very like cut and dry yeah but but no that trio traips through, traipses through the woods, and jo- Joyce and Hopper continue to argue over what we will eventually find out is Hopper's plan to take Alexi to Murray. But it, I will say that it psychs me out every time I watch this episode that when you when the when they dissolve and mm-hmm. it transitions into the astral plane, but shifting the, to the, back to the group of kids, I I totally I'm like wait what's happening? Oh right. But I actually really like that transition. I like it a lot. Yeah, me too. It's very cool. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was a really good moment. Yeah. And Eleven watches them from the void, uh, and she relays to her friends that they are going to ill annoy, (laughs) which was cute. I don't know if it makes any kind of actual sense, but I thought it was cute. (laughs) Like the state? Shrug. Ill annoy. (laughs) What have you guys been teaching her these last six months? Like, yeah. Especially as being a state that borders Indiana, like, I would think that that would be, like, one of those, like, kind of just things she would have picked up just through osmosis, but it's fine. Honestly, she should be some kind of homeschooled at this point, right? Like, what are the 50 states? I mean, that's pretty basic. Yeah. I also tend to forget that, that the kids do try to locate Hopper first. And I actually, despite everything we've been saying about Hopper, like, it actually is a really nice touch that they are still kids at this point. Like, even in the broader sense, like, they're still younger than the rest of their contingent. And so their instincts are to reach out to Hopper. He's the adult who is the most in charge, you know, by most accounts. And based on the past two seasons version of Hopper, yeah, it makes absolute sense that they would try to find him. Like, hell, I would. And I mean, to be fair, Hopper's instinct to go to Murray is a pretty smart one. Nancy might be a better alternative, even if she doesn't have a lot of like legal or societal power like even thinking back to season one like her i want to kill it you know version of herself is very no nonsense not to be fucked with like she gets shit done but they probably wouldn't see her that way though true she's it's just another teenage girl at this point whereas hopper is you know a chief police man so like he'd be a better candidate to find first i mean i guess probably after this like, I would think that if they if they don't see Nancy as a possibility, then I guess Steve would probably be their next one. But but not necessarily, because Dustin's not there. Dustin's with Steve, but... I was about to say, maybe next she would have tried to find Dustin out of everybody. Mm. Even if Dustin isn't an authority figure, he's still another person that's in their circle about everything. Dude, you just nailed <laughs> actually a pretty, a pretty massive plot hole. Why didn't they ever find Dustin? <laughs> Why didn't they ever divide for him? Yeah, I think, well, I think that at some point they're saying something like, Dustin's MIA. They've already tried to find Hopper, and then I think that's when Nancy and Jonathan show up. So yes. I, I, for, I, 
right now. I can't remember what they do exactly after that. But yeah, maybe they just didn't have time to find Destin right in that moment. They had other stuff, but they could have done it earlier. <laughs> yeah, Elle goes into the bathroom and that's because that's right after that uh, is when Max is helping Elle clean up her nosebleed and the two of them kind of look at the bruise that Billy left on her and Elle says it only hurts when she talks. Uh, and outside, Mike, Lucas and Will are talking and then in the middle of Mike's kind of breakdown while Elle is not able to do anything or at least she's taking a break that's when Nancy and Jonathan arrive and then they start comparing notes so th- maybe they were planning to reach out to, to find Dustin but they never do so when Max makes the joke about well good thing you're not Mike then because he's just blah 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 I actually think based on the way that Sadie Sink plays it, it feels more like she's doing the thing of like making a joke to lighten the mood, you know, rather than just being a cheap shot at Mike. And so so I actually really end up liking that. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, And meanwhile, Mike is outside saying, what happens when we find the Mind Flayer? What happens then? Well, then we win. And Mike goes, no, that's not what happens. I really liked that coming from Mike. I had been thinking pretty much the whole time, like, yeah, um, this is probably the writers talking to themselves in the room like well what happens then guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, they win. no they don't like what are you talking about they win yeah like we don't know we don't even know what the mind flayer really is we don't know how smart it is we don't know what it wants truly how do they win against it so when they were talking about this i was sitting here going yeah what kind of corner have we gotten ourselves written into like what where do we go from here what happens now <laughs> Yeah, I'm sh- I know you guys will talk about the end when you get to it, but I did. I was not entirely satisfied with how the ending went down with the Mind Flayer, and I do think that that speaks to them being a little bit written into a corner. This particular conversation between Mike and Lucas really made me feel that. I Yeah, what's funny, though, is that this moment of them talking and deliberating, the tone of it, the rhythm, the the way that Wolfhard and McLaughlin, even Schnapp, the way that they're playing this this conversation, it feels like them. And it, even as much as I love chapter four, this feels m- the cl- like the closest that we've gotten to this season to what their dynamic has felt like in the past. And this is up until the next part when they start talking about the girls again. Yeah, the way they're deducing and debating and reasoning out the variables, like they're they're thinking through it, they're reasoning it out. It just feels so much like they're them again. And I also like the fact that Mike calls out the bizarreness of how Hopper being unreachable all of a sudden and then notices that Dustin is MIA. And Despite the fact that I miss Dustin's presence with this group, I kind of like, for one of the only occasions in this whole season, that Dustin isn't there. Because, girl stuff aside, we get to see them do this logic breakdown with a different trio. It's not a quartet. It's not their full quartet. It is still a trio. But because it's it's Will and not Dustin, the dynamic is different. And I kind of like that we get to see them being a cohesive group with Will. Yeah, I was gonna say, even without Dustin there, they still have a similar dynamic as when they do with the four boys or with the three by the three boys minus Will from like the first season. It's a similar dynamic. It's definitely different, but it still brings back those feelings from the first season. Definitely. I loved that. Um, Will to me still seems a little bit weak in terms of his own character you know we we still don't get a lot out of him in terms of developing his character but he it still works with the three of them really well 
which is a shame because when they suddenly like shift their attention back to to Max and, and Elle and Mike wondering, well, what are they doing in the bathroom? To which we get that oh so overused girl joke about girls liking to hang out in bathrooms. Sigh. And Mike theorizes that they must be conspiring against him, which the girls hear and laugh at. Like they could have used that moment to do exactly what you just said. Like they could have used that to, you know, actually develop will a little bit more but instead it goes right back to what we saw in chapter three and i don't think we needed to to recycle it here i kind of feel like that in this moment it's the first occasion where they act like the conversation in the garage never happened yes i was just thinking maybe they could have sort of continued that conversation or you know referenced it and and because that's a conversation that still needs to be developed at this point even further even if they had only handled it or like the direction of this moment there was a feeling of like well there's that the elephant in the room like it's kind of hovering but they're not addressing it that doesn't happen they're just acting like it didn't it didn't even transpire that's a good point okay i guess it would be weird for mike or will for either of them to bring up that conversation with lucas and the girls present i mean technically the girls are in the bathroom but you know they can hear everything so it, it would probably feel awkward to just kind of bring that up but they still like you said they could have referenced it somehow like even obliquely but no we did pivot to the talk about the girls again which i like that mike said like i i have a sub it's a sub concern okay i can worry about more than one thing at one time like that's Totally fair. I liked I liked that line. That was really funny. That was good. And of course, the scene shifts gears when Nancy and Jonathan arrive. Back at Star Court, or under it, uh, Dustin tries to use the walkie-talkie to reach the others for help, but to no avail. There was a visual thing that I noticed. I liked that both in this chapter and in chapter four, the first shot of Dustin is this like crane or possibly a drone shot from one extreme angle into another. Like in chapter four, it's that really low angle, like shot that like goes up the climbs up the side of the building and then shifts to like kind of a high angle down on him when he's doing surveillance but here it's from this like super high like top angle from the elevator shaft like down and shifts down into the bottom of the shaft which i don't know why it was just kind of a nice little moment of symmetry even though the directors are different true taking the camera and looking down on somebody especially when you have all four walls going right down Uh, can symbolize being imprisoned. It symbolizes being trapped, even if you don't see the four walls. That's a very general note, but, um, and of course it's not always used that way, but um, usually if you're looking down on somebody, it means they are small and trapped, and and they Mm -hmm. are in this moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, Steve and Dustin chat on the roof of the elevator. Dustin continuing to make it clear that he ships Steve and Robin, but Steve dismisses it. And I like genuinely, like, I like that his reaction seems in earnest. Like, it doesn't strike me that Steve is, like, in denial, which they, again, they could have easily gone in that direction, especially with everything else they have going on with, like, Joyce and Hopper. And maybe that's because of where it's going. But I kind of like that in this moment, he's like, dude, we have bigger problems right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I do too. We're just trying not to die. Steve is a pretty practical guy trying to think of a more delicate way to put this but he is a horny teenager and um but right now they're in a very extreme survival situation so he he can shift gears yeah. <laughs> we'll give him that much <laughs> well and that and like i said that just that feels like a decision it feels like a choice that they made in terms of the yeah. writing but also in curious performance like i i just i appreciate the lack of like dipping into that even though dustin like i said calls it out pretty pretty strongly absolutely yeah 
and then he pees. They didn't they didn't establish a pee corner already. <laughs> you guys, we talk about this being a survival situation. Yeah. You establish a pee corner pretty early on, don't you? <laughs> Especially with like Erica, she's like a 10-year-old girl. She's probably going to have to pee before any of them, right? <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. No one's peed yet. Seriously, it's been like 14 hours, maybe. Yeah. I mean, maybe not that long. It's been, but still. <laughs> oh, goodness. Like, they call attention to it, and it's like they don't bother to to even address the fact that, like, um, you have two girls there. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is one of their ways of trying to combat suspension of disbelief issues yeah you know they wanted to mention the fact that they were gonna have to pee so they had somebody pee but then like there's so many other issues with this show and suspension of disbelief why this thing you know they could have used it to be a character moment for for someone like dustin or steve steve is kind of like the leader of this group so that that could have been part of his moment like all right guys we're gonna set down some ground rules uh here's a pee corner yeah <laughs> like i don't know <laughs> but the way they actually handled it like Really? That's that was just so weird. <laughs> it was. It was very odd. But speaking of of Erica and Robin, they are arguing inside the elevator over whether or not the green liquid is drinkable until Robin hears a cart approaching. They hide on top of the elevator watching the Russians unload boxes and then Scoopstrip is about to watch the guys like leave when Steve notices that Erica's holding the canister and gets an idea. Just as the elevator door closes, Steve jumps down and lunges and uses uses the canister to prop open the doors. It closes, they slip under it, and the canister cracks under the door's pressure, and it melts through the floor. That was quick thinking, too. Yeah, it really was. That and was impressively and quick. The, both the thinking of it and then, honestly, like him being able to jump down and get that thing under there, it was like... Yeah, that the idea and the execution. Like, damn, I'm still not 100% sure I would have trusted that thing to hold the door up. But they, it, I mean, you know, plot armor, it did. And they got through just fine. So it does make me nervous, too. Like, every time Steve barely gets out of there, I'm like, <laughs> I know, I know. Ugh. Um, but that also serves as a plot device to show us that the green liquid is very caustic, not drinkable, and that it's probably something we are unfamiliar with. They get out, so they're out, but uh, with no other options, they begin the long walk down the hallway ahead of them. And I'm like, did we really need the comment on Dustin not being in shape? No, we didn't. What was the point of it? I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't even play into their, like, relationship, because it's not like... It's not like Steve likes to share fitness tips with Dustin. Like, maybe if that was part of Steve's character, like, that would have made more sense. But it's not. So why... That was low-hanging fruit. That's all that was. Yeah, why go there? Also, this made me think, you know, the whole Russian facility isn't even under Starcourt Mall. The only reason, the only thing that they have under Starcourt Mall is that elevator shaft. So what they built this whole entire mall for an elevator shaft, they really couldn't have built an elevator shaft in the middle of nowhere, wherever their facility is, to go right on top of their facility. I don't know. That was just, again, another question about the whole Russian infrastructure I, I have no idea what they were going for there well i mean and that doesn't even get into the whole idea of like how are they feeding all of these people i mean erica makes the comment later about their commies they cut corners but it's like yeah but you still have to like supply there's this whole supply issue here i mean that's probably what starcourt is for it's for getting materials in and out like under the cover of the mall and probably so that the construction of it could go unnoticed but like you say the construction would have been happening elsewhere so I don't know. So many things. 
but also elsewhere. Nancy and Jonathan have convened with the kids at the Wheelers, where Nancy brings them all up to speed on what happened to Mrs. Driscoll and the similarities to what happened to Will. In comparing notes, it becomes evident that the sauna test overlaps with Mrs. Driscoll's episode. So they conclude that Billy, Mrs. Driscoll, the Holloways, they're all flayed, as Mike says, and it's likely that there are more. And then, yeah, this is where we get the tension between Nancy and Jonathan. I like, though, that Elle in this moment is the one who is concerned and focused on Heather. It reminds me a little of Nancy's concern for Barb in season one. It's a nice human, human touch, which is good. So they all pile into Nancy's car and head off toward the Holloway residence. And uh, Mike and Will are forced into the back seat, which seems like it's going to be set up for them to have to interact closely and circle back to their last one-on-one chat. But nope! Terminator finds Hopper's truck while Hopper and Joyce squabble as they walk, her asking first that he not walk so close to her, which he noticeably doesn't do. He doesn't move away from her. And instead, he accuses her of being cranky because he blew up the car. She says, yeah, with me in it, because he didn't listen to Alexi, who Hopper then calls Joyce's new BF and brings up Scott Clark again. Okay, first of all, doesn't matter why she said to move away. She asked you to move away. Yes, she said it's because he stinks, but regardless, it's more boundaries not being respected. He just doesn't even remotely listen to her. Even if, like, he had done, like, a blustery gesture of, like, thrown his hands up and held way back, like, and gone, okay, fine, I'll give you your space, like, that at least would have been something. But he doesn't do that. He just, they stay in exactly the same proximity and then snaps at her defensive, like, somehow she's at fault for what's happening. This whole scene, this whole interaction is just more of the same bullshit that we've been talking about with him. It's just more problematic behavior. It completely undoes all of the good stuff that happened in chapter four. Like, they had this moment where they moved past the shit with Scott Clark. They had that really nice romantic beat at Klein's mansion. It felt forward moving. It felt like, okay, we're moving in a nice direction. Why go back to this? Why? It makes me so frustrated because it's like, what was the point of moving forward in chapter four if you're just gonna go right back? So we've established that it's very hot and humid and they're in a very annoying situation in general with walking to Illinois or whatever, <laughs> with, with Russians attacking them, their car getting blown up, everything. I think they both have the right to be a little bit cranky in general sure. and maybe with each other. So what I would have liked to have seen was Joyce going on the offensive not saying that Hopper should have said all the stupid, toxic shit that he said, but what if Joyce hit back a little bit? Instead, she's 100% on the defensive in this conversation. She's just sitting here going, what are you talking about? Like, yes, every man I talk to is now my boyfriend. Like, no, hit back at him. Like, I, she should also be frustrated because of the whole situation and it being 100 degrees and humid and gross and everything and the mosquitoes. So that, that maybe could have worked a little bit better, because then at least I would have put them on the, and a bit more of an even playing field, uh, the same level. But instead, it's just more Hopper punching down. A lot of these toxic behaviors that we keep talking about, they are played for laughs, or they are yeah. played to be not taken, oh, don't take him seriously. He's just being an abusive asshole. It's fine. It's, it's just an 80s trope, you guys. And like, no, that trope has been done, and it wasn't a good one. So, like, let's let it die. <laughs> you know, like, let's move on yeah. from that. And that's, that's, you know, he's a great person. But then he had the arc, and now we're back to this, like, yeah, this really frustrating, toxic person. 
when we see things in popular media, we reflect it back in our real lives. And if you learn to forgive things in a TV show, you might be more readily, ready to forgive them in real life. And that is, that is a problem. <laughs> that is not what we want. Yes, and I completely agree because you know what's missing from this exchange? If nothing else, what's missing is when he says the thing about, maybe you should go on a date, you know, say Enzo's. We really need, just as much as we needed a response before about her apologizing, how that's missing, we need a moment here when she says, you said it wasn't a date. You deliberately yes. misled me or you lied. But that point is never addressed, that he was not honest with her. Again, it doesn't negate the fact that she owes him an apology that he never receives. But again, you could have had him say, you never apologized. Like, that would have been great if she had said this, like, you said it wasn't a date. And he says, yeah, well, you never apologized. Kind of like how in um, Beauty and the Beast, when the whole, like, well, you shouldn't have been in the West Wing. Well, you should learn to control your temper. Like that whole bickering that they do, like it works because they're yes. both right. And because they're both on the same level. Another thing too is that Joyce, not only is she on the defensive in this whole conversation, at a certain point, you are done with this man's bullshit. And you just say, you know what? I'm done with your bullshit. And you just stop. And that never comes. And that is also disappointing as well. Yeah, the scene just drives me crazy and not in a good way. <laughs> And yeah, Alexi does take off running. Hopper gives chase, but it's short-lived because that's when they arrive at the 7-Eleven. And Alexi is drawn to the, to the Slurpee machine. That was kind of funny. <laughs> it's adorable. Hopper stocks up on food and drink, tells the cashier he's a cop while Joyce makes a phone call to check up on Will, who according to the phone calls at the movies. And then that's when they steal the car. And I, I don't want to belabor this point. I mean, I don't know if you have a lot of commentary on this moment, but I the only thing I like is the is this I like the sound of Detective Byers. That's the only thing I like about this sequence. You can just kind of see Joyce going, huh, okay. And it's, it, I love that she gets that little confidence boost from him and from that from him saying that. I loved that. But you know, pretty much the rest of it was just like, this is not like madcap fun. Like I think they're trying to portray it. Meanwhile, Scoob's troop keep walking and debate the underground facility's purpose, leading Dustin and Steve to step back and privately theorize that it might have to do with the gate or the lab. Dustin's supercom picks up the Russian code, and they realize that they are close to the broadcast origin. So they hope that they might be able to send an SOS to get to the surface. So onwards they go. It stood out to me at this point that, you know, we're over halfway through the season, but it still feels like they're just sort of starting to get certain pieces of the puzzle. But the other group arrives at the Holloway house and find it empty, except for this mess in the kitchen. The fridge is tipped over, this array of emptied chemical containers is all over the place. And as Will says, this is something new. And the kids, including Max, start positing that the flayed are using the chemicals to make a substance inside themselves and that they can't be human to do so. I love that Mike brings up Mr. Clark and that it's an elementary thing. Like, literally, he says fifth grade. And it's, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just a nice callback to their younger selves and that they're science nerds. It's just, it was nice. It was a very welcome callback. They go into the hallway and find the remains of the struggle that we witnessed a few episodes ago. And when Nancy sees the blood, she remembers the bandage on Tom's forehead and determines that he was attacked, dragged into the garage, and Jonathan deduces that they were driven somewhere. Uh, Nancy recalls that Mrs. Driscoll said... I have to go back. So she and Elle piece together that the flaying is happening somewhere else. And so 
they decide that if they can find the source, then they can try it, potentially put a stop to it in some in some capacity. So Will suggests that they let Mrs. Driscoll, in fact, go back. It was interesting that this idea came from Will, of all people, too, because we've been talking about how, you know, Nancy is a real idea person. Mike's a real idea person. Max is very, um, she's very quick thinking and strategic as well. Um, Lucas is also, I mean, these are a, a very logical set of kids. Will is one that we haven't really seen be that person yet. So I don't know, it was an interesting choice for him to be the one to say, why don't we let Mrs. Driscoll lead us there? Terminator tracks the adults to the 7-Eleven where Todd, whose car was stolen, is complaining to the police. Terminator interrogates 7-Eleven clerk. Joyce Hopper and Alexi disembark Todd's car when they arrive at Murray's place, and they go through the same sort of song and dance that Nancy and Jonathan went through last season, culminating in Murray demanding to know Alexi's name, last name, by way of throwing open the door, holding a shotgun, and Alexi speaks Russian, and this time we get subtitles so that we are ready to understand Murray's response also in Russian. This is, I love this moment. I do love the moment with Murray. Absolutely. I, I do think that Alexi maybe should have said something. He said a relatively long sentence. He has no reason to believe that Murray speaks Russian at this point. He wouldn't know that. So why did he say this whole long sentence? He hasn't said anything like that to Joyce or Hopper. He probably would have just said something more reactionary, like, holy shit, or something that's, like, don't shoot me. True. But he says this, like, you American pig, put down your gun or something like that. Like, I get why they do that, because they wanted Murray to say his cool line back, but it was still kind of like, come on, guys. When I first watched this, my reaction was like, it wasn't so much that I was surprised that Murray could speak Russian. It was it was more like a yes, you know, kind of moment. <laughs> I totally buy that Murray would speak Russian. Like, keep your friends close, enemies closer. He'd want to be able to, like, you know, intercept and interpret and understand Russian messages. So he wouldn't trust an interpreter to do it. No. Yeah. Like Murray showing up, it's such a nice addition to this group. And I, I'm really happy that he's back and I'm, I'm glad that he's going to be in season four as well. Yes. Inside Murray insists that he will search Alexi until he's satisfied, starting with a metal detector Joyce pulls Hop aside and expresses some uh, doubt over Murray's sanity, and Hopper points out that it's a little hypocritical, and they start to argue again, which Murray interrupts, referring to it as a lover's quarrel, and Joyce, fed up, barges up to Murray and shouts it back at him and demands that he help them, followed by, please. (laughs) I love this moment for Joyce. The parallels that they're trying to draw between... Joyce and Hopper and then Nancy and Jonathan's visit, I did not like. I do not care for. No, I don't either. I love the fact that Joyce and Murray are kind of similar. Like, I like the fact that we get to see them directly interact. Like, that I find really, really interesting. And I was, I remember being, like, looking forward to when these two would share a scene together because I I just think that they're really, they're both really interesting and they have both different and similar personalities and also like just their their whole approach to things they're they're very much both like very set and very like determined in their very specific ways i'm not even saying that like oh they're both like conspiracy nuts like i'm not saying that at all i just like the way that her walking up to murray and being like no you're gonna help us goddammit. and it's very different from the way that nancy approached him last season with a very calm cool collected like i've got information you don't have like I liked that. I enjoyed that. But I like that this is just this is different. This feels like an like a like a development past what we saw, which is different from how the whole like 
parallel to the relationshipy stuff is. Meanwhile, the Scoop's troop make it to the heart of the base, which is swimming with guards and scientists. And Erica perceives enough of the communications room that Robin will, quote, take those odds. So they sneak in and are confronted by the man broadcasting the code. So I watched the shot by shot video on YouTube, the, which like breaks down this scene from this sequence with Gate Matarazzo, Joe Curie, and Maya Hawk, And it's really cool. I highly recommend it. It's so fun to watch. I just love stuff like that. And especially hearing them talk about what it was like to actually shoot it is really fun. So I'm not going to repeat the entire video here, but I will put a link to the video in the show notes. But I will highlight a couple of my favorite bits from that video. They talk about how the shot where they all like lean out in like the line, they called that the Scooby-Doo shot. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's good. Hawk and Matarazzo have this like rapid fire debate about who was who, like in the Scooby gang. It's really fun. And when Erica says that she saw the comms room and Steve repeats back like what she said and she says, correct. It is such a thing that she and Lucas have in common. I love it. Like, because that's something that Lucas <laughs> yeah. will do. I was like, I, I like it because it draws the, the parallel between them. Like, they are siblings. That they have a similar, like, vernacular. I like that. I thought that was cool. Because Lucas says stuff like that all the time. It, it is funny that we don't have, like, more parallels between the two of them. They, they are very different characters, for sure. So it's cool to see some similarities. Yeah, yeah. And I remember her catching that detail was my first indication that there might be more to Miss Erica than meets the eye. When they uh, when they get up to the to the room and they see the guy there, the Russian guy in the video, all three of them go, this is George. So apparently the actor playing this part, his name was George and he was part of a, a circus at one point. Like it's it's really funny to hear them talk about him. Robin steps forward in that room and recites, she recites the code, which almost works, but when George tries to draw his gun. Steve lurches into action, fights the guy, and defeats him. And Dustin, looking genuinely delighted, praises Steve for winning a fight. Which, like, aside from what I've already said about his comment last episode, this is legit. I'm happy for Steve that he won a fight. I know it's like a whole thing, but whatever. I'll give Steve this moment. Dustin goes for George's keys, bickering with Erica over next steps, while Robin goes up to the stairs, up the stairs following the blue light. They all go up and peer through the door, or through the windows. The camera pulls back through the window, revealing the same machine, or a very similar model, from Chapter 1. And we see that the canisters of green goo are going into the machine to power it. I do wonder what that green goo actually is. Is it radioactive? Like, what? I don't understand. Where is it coming from? Why do they have to ship it so far? Like, is it coming from Russia? Like... Is it really just for powering stuff up, or is it slightly different? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. I also hadn't noticed before that you can actually see the reflection of the machine in the glass of the big giant like bay windows of the observation room before you see the machine itself, which I had never noticed before. It's like high up in the frame, but it's, it's kind of neat. You can see it before you see it. Following up from what I said earlier, the fact that Dustin and Steve see the machine even though they're kind of late to the party with a lot of other information, they're the ones who, who see the machine and therefore know what's actually happening. It's amazing how quickly it raises the stakes for them, too. Like, they already are like, what are these Russians doing underground in our city? But then they see this and they're like, oh, shit. Because they know about the upside down. They know what could possibly happen with it. So that, yeah. 
makes you kind of like invested in like, okay, we knew that. Now they know that. Now they have to get out of this facility so they can get back to the rest and so they can tell them what's going on. This is what I like about video games. And if this was a video game, you get a little thing that said quest complete. Now get the fuck out. (laughs) But if you were those people in real life, you'd be like, you know, what do we do now? Speaking of the other group, they all get to the hospital, but only two people at a time can go actually to see Mrs. Driscoll. So Nancy and Jonathan go in while the rest of the group, all the kids, wait. But yeah, Nancy and Jonathan pair off and go have their scene in the elevator, which after how beautifully that scene was constructed in chapter four between Nancy and Karen, and even the scene in the car in which there was so much validation, there was so much articulation of Nancy as a character, her female perspective, the experience that she's had with sexism, the general pitfalls and difficulties of dealing with it, and what we have seen happen in this show explicitly without having to make Jonathan wrong. Here, all of that gets undone. The only way in which she acknowledges her part in that argument is by saying, like, I don't think that you think those things. But she never says, yeah, which she says in the scene with Karen, she says she acknowledges the fact that she was she disregarded Jonathan's concerns completely. But he, meanwhile, has to completely negate everything he said in the car. He wasn't wrong. And he says, I was completely, utterly and mortifyingly wrong. It's like, no, dude, you weren't. You made some really good points. Your perspective is valid, too. And this exchange takes away all of that balance that was so beautifully executed in chapter four. Like, I forgot how this scene actually played out, and I just was so disappointed. Yeah, this was such a jarring scene. Like, his perspective is so important, and he was not wrong. That's one of the best things about their argument in the car, is that neither of them are wrong. Neither of them are exactly right either. And I mean, that's the whole beauty of that argument that they have and that conversation that's back and forth. They're both struggling in different ways and they're trying to understand that, even though they both say at the end, I think we don't understand each other anymore. But that's not, they're both trying to meet in the middle and understand the other's struggles. And this just... This goes back to what we were talking about before with his character, with him, you know, what what does he want? What does Jonathan Byers want out of life in general? Oh, apparently he just wants to make Nancy happy, (laughs) at least in this uh, scenario. She says we don't understand each other. To me, the natural then bookend of this moment should be them understanding each other. It should be her extenuating acknowledgement and understanding of his perspective, too. And he honestly doesn't express any real understanding of her experience either. That's true. To be fair, him just saying, I was wrong. It's like, no, he just goes, I was wrong. And also, like, her going, like, I just look forward to you never doubting me ever again. I'm like, girl, it's not like they're gonna suddenly understand everything about each other and then like oh the rest of their lives we're never gonna misunderstand or doubt each other ever again no but they definitely have or should have reached some other understanding between all the stuff they talked about in the car like look i get that you're coming from a different place than where i was coming from that's where we were kind of going wrong with each other and and kind of just gone on from there and that's not what we got yeah it's, this was extremely frustrating like, if they were trying to, like, pull in, which I don't think they're doing at all, but if they were trying to pull in, like, some of the stuff from, like, the photos from season one, like, that could have been at least interesting, but it's not what's happening here. That's true, because I even recently, scrolling through the internet, saw, a, you know, a lot of people don't like the fact that Nancy gets together with Jonathan in season one, or season two, whatever, because of him being a creep in season one. 
I totally get that. But this is where Jonathan's character developing is so important. People do make mistakes, uh, even if they're super fucking creepy. It does happen. But the fact that he is, you know, overall a good person or whatever and doesn't do creepy things again, fine. And, and that's why we need his character to continue to develop on its own and not just be support character for all these other people. And this is a step back for him. Meanwhile, upstairs, Eleven, not so discreetly, helps Mike with the vending machine issues, and Lucas determines that this is probably an olive branch and urges Mike to talk to her. Jonathan and Nancy reach Mrs. Driscoll's floor, and the halls are totally empty. Like, there should be people in those halls, nurses, techs, doctors, but nope, nothing. Mrs. Driscoll isn't even there when they reach her room, and the lights start flickering just as they're joined by Tom, whose hands are bloody. He says, we were hoping you might come back. Why? Like, Jonathan and Nancy, are like, are they specific targets for the Mind Flayer? I don't know that we've seen any specific evidence of that. If anything, they've, it seems like they've been discouraged from having any connection with what's going on. So when did that change? And if not to flay them, I guess to kill them or something else? It works in the moment, like in the sudden, like, dun, 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 you know, energy of the moment. But I found myself going, why? Why did they specifically hope they'd come back? Yeah, this is one of those things where on first watch, of course, I was just creeped the fuck out. Like, yeah, yeah, gross. But then on rewatch, it's like, this is one of those things that leads me down the whole rabbit hole of, well, okay, what does a mind flayer want? How intelligent is this creature? Is it changing by being on our plane instead of, you know, in the upside down? Is it becoming more sentient? Is it, what is happening? What, what is happening here? Period. And we still don't know. Yeah. Back upstairs, Lucas and Max seem to be on good terms again. They're tossing M&Ms into one another's mouths, but meanwhile, but Mike takes a seat next to Elle and not so subtly indicates he wants Will to move so they can be alone, which he does, and Mike and Elle chat. He compliments her new look, and she seems to be warming back up to him. I like the scene between Mike and Elle. It's cute, but it feels like this interaction doesn't actually address his behavior or the fact that that she violated his privacy. We don't, again, we don't get any kind of acknowledgement or discussion of what happened between Mike and Will. They're, again, acting like the scene between them in Chapter 3 didn't didn't happen. There need to be things said in these exchanges that just aren't. And I noticed their absence. And maybe that makes sense for them with the ages that they're at. This is just another example of the setups and payoffs not paying off except for that species line i mean i kind of did like that he said that it's you know it felt a little self-deprecating which i think was a good start and they really could have gone from there and it could have been pretty strong um like you said it was cute it was good um it's nice that they're trying to work things out but it just i don't know it was a little bit stilted almost The music track here is also First Kiss, which is from season one, and I actually liked that. It was a nice touch. We get this whole action sequence where Nancy and Bruce are basically facing off in one room. Jonathan and Tom are in another. They both take so much damage. In the moment, like, I like the fact that, like, at one point when Jonathan is, like, trying to, like, get back up after he's been, like, thrown into the wall several times and he's been, like, hit in the back with the stool. The stool on his back? Like, oh my god. Uh, Yeah, I cringed when I saw that. He's acting like he's in the kind of pain he would be in and, like, having trouble breathing. Like, that works for me, but the fact that it's, like... Nancy gets thrown into a wall, like, and they're fine. 
that's where I keep feeling like the writers keep writing themselves into these corners and they can't, what, think of other ways to get out of it than have their characters get the shit beaten out of them. We were talking about if maybe it was rushed, the writing of this season, and this is one area where it might feel, yeah, like it was probably rushed. They needed more time to think of smarter ways to get their characters out of these situations, and they didn't quite have it. I do like the way that they set up the hive mind, or not even hive mind, but hive body kind of thing, Mm -hmm. where like one gets hit, the other one feels it. I like the fact that Nancy gets to, I mean, it made me think of how you said earlier in chapter three, that even though Nancy bashes Bruce's face in, it's not really Bruce. So it feels a little bit unsatisfying in that sense. Also, when Bruce is like stalking for Nancy and Tom is throwing Jonathan around, I'm like, dude, why all the foreplay? Just flay them or kill them. Like, why why is this... Like, and I know it's for dramatic effect, but it just seems to go on for no reason. We're circling back to suspension of disbelief again. Yeah. Maybe the mind flayer is just very sadistic. I don't know. Maybe. Well, again, compare this to the sauna test. Like, I don't think that Billy is, like, toying with Elle in that sequence. Like, they feel equally matched. And in this moment, like, Jonathan and Nancy are no match for these two. I mean, they end up winning, sort of, but, like... Again, it just doesn't feel like there's any... The only reason they win is because the other two prolong it. And plot armor. That, don't forget that. Yeah. That's important, yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Like, this whole sequence, first watch through especially, I thought the horror aspects were really effective. It was... This, it's the stuff of nightmares, really. Nancy leaving Jonathan yeah. and then running down that hallway yelling, help, so desperately. I, I think Natalia Dyer screaming for help like that. Like, that is literally the stuff of nightmares. She does a fantastic job with that. It's so good. You feel that. And then the the... The, that awful despair and desperation that she, her character must be feeling. It's great. Um, but you, on rewatch especially, just a lot of the plot points come out as nonsensical and like after the bodies dissolve and then congeal together, it's like, well, why were they them in the first place? Why couldn't it just have snuck in somehow without being seen and torn a bunch of people apart without impersonating anybody? The whole sequence feels very horror film. And I mean, I know, But it doesn't feel very Stranger Things to me in terms of its style. It feels, because it's so long, the sequence is so long. So, like, again, compared to the sauna test finale, which felt very Stranger Things, particularly the shots like that zoom in or that, like, dolly in close up on Nancy's face where her eyes are, like, super wide and, like, the angle that it's at, it just feels very, like, horror film. That's not a bad thing. It's just I noticed that that stylistically it felt a little bit more obvious. But... I remember theories flying around about this goo monster, like who it was or what it was before when they first dropped that Baba O'Reilly trailer. I'm also not sure how just those two bodies formed that one giant thing, though. Yeah, I guess it was pretty big. It's pretty big. It's bigger than two human beings because it's that big blob in the middle and then it's those arms, like all the arms off of it. So Um, plus all the teeth. Yeah, like gross. What the fuck? I mean, everybody's performances were great. My gosh, the guys that play Tom and Bruce, I think they did their, you know, their mind flayer hive mind parts really well. Absolutely. Tom is another character that I'm like, I like him as an antagonist. I would have loved to have seen him stick around for longer oh, yeah. than this. He's great. Yeah. Very sinister. Nope, they're gone. They're dead. <laughs> I did think like, uh, hey, Nancy, Jonathan, if you were waiting for the opportune moment, that, <laughs> that was, was it. it. <laughs> like, I get why they stick around to, to like, see what this is culminating to, like, what's happening. But I'm also like, 
that was your moment to run. That was your yeah. time to get away. <laughs> like, and the fact that they get cul de sac too was so frustrating. Yeah. Like, y'all know where the exits are. They're labeled. It's a hospital. Yeah. No, we run into a room. Well, to be fair, she she does kind of go for... She goes for the phone. She tries to get to the phone. They both try to communicate. That's right. So that, that's the end of the episode. So final thoughts on chapter five, the flayed. I, li- I kind of like that they ended it on that shot of the monster. It's kind of like saying the mask is off. This is it. I mean, it, it does get bigger with more bodies, I think. But it is kind of cool. Like, yep, this is it. This is what we're up against. And I, I do think it's interesting to be left with those thoughts at the very end. That's actually a really good point, especially considering what we were just talking about with Dustin and Steve kind of getting the big reveal of the, so it ends with two it actually this episode has two pretty big reveals our parties both getting big landmark pieces of information so now it's time to get the parties back together pull their information and have the final boss fight basically yeah structurally it's a good place to end it too because this was the big final moment of that one trailer so to have this moment be like okay, now you have to watch the next episode to actually find out what happens from this point. Like, actually, I thought, like, just from a structural perspective, I was like, that's actually pretty smart. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I find that this episode overall feels feels good, better than the first three, for sure. But it's very much a fallback from the fourth chapter. I had a much better memory of chapter five going in than I did actually coming out of it like there like I I had very good memories of that scene between Jonathan and Nancy in the elevator that I was really surprised by how much I didn't like that scene but I I loved seeing these moments of Mike and Lucas and Will working together like that was a real highlight I loved getting to see Alexi and Joyce interact I love Murray being back so this this episode does have a lot of highlights and there's a lot about it that I enjoy but it does it feels like a lot of the things in this in this episode directly oppose and even nullify much of what we saw in just the previous chapter which is a really big bummer I wonder how much of that has to do with continuity in writers and directors I mean the Duffer brothers don't they work on every single episode you'd think that there'd be a bit more continuity well, and Sean Levy as well. But I, I mean, I really do think that, that that writer from last episode played such a huge part in that. Like, I wonder if there was just a lot of dis- disjointedness in, in the writing process of this season as well. Like, if it was, maybe it was rushed, maybe it, it was, they were at a bit of a loss. But also if it was like, there wasn't a lot of, like, conversation, like, like collaboration yeah. during the writing process, which yeah, is one of the, the things that it stands out so much in the first season, especially, like, how much of that there seemed to be we have these moments where it's like, there, that, that's Stranger Things, right there, that's it, that's great. And then it goes away. So, and the Scoop Strip continue to be my favorite of the teams. Even though so much of their stuff is ridiculous, I love it anyway. I feel like their stuff is ridiculous in the right way. Like, yeah, okay, the the stuff with the Russians and the logistics of the whole underground bunker thing are, are a little bit too ridiculous. But the way that that group of characters is handling it is, I think, hitting all the right beats. And I really love that. I wonder if part of the reason that 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 kind of like what we talked about towards the beginning of the episode, that you have this interesting mix with the Scoops troop. So it shakes up the perspectives in a really interesting way. And I just now now that I look back on it, I'm like, I wonder if they had shuffled the care the other groups around a little bit more if that might have helped, at least the kids group. Yeah, and this is where um, what we were talking about with Will, I think, could have been helped a lot better. Like, 
we, I keep saying that Will is just not really utilized very well. He's almost like a plot device more than a character. So throwing him into, we, we talked about what if he was with the Scoops troops and how that could have been more interesting. But yeah, no, just throwing Will around with almost anybody else besides Joyce. I don't think we really need to see any more Will-Joyce dynamic. You know what? Even to split up Joyce and Hopper, I would have liked yeah. to have seen that. I mean, even if they didn't have this awful toxic relationship in this season... Even if they were more like friends and they understood each other better, I still think it would have been interesting to split them up and have each of them with different, you know, groups of the kids. I don't know. Mm-hmm. This was a bit of a filler episode, too. Like, like there's definitely a few big reveals, like we just said, but we, we found a lot to complain about. <laughs> yeah. But I guess with that said, that's going to conclude our contemplation on Chapter 5, The Flayed. If... You've got comments, questions, thoughts? You can join the conversation. We're on Instagram and Facebook as Coffee and Contemplation Pod, and TikTok as at Coffee and Hawkins. Like, share, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and consider leaving us a review. Thanks for listening. Over and out. Recording. Sorry. <laughs> I thought I was going to get that in first. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the slate. That's our audio slate. I guess so. <laughs>